Imagine a world with a windmill on every corner, generating power right there on the spot. Attached to these windmills or solar panels or any other form of renewable energy, there are different types of plugins, trickle chargers and superchargers for people to draw power for almost anything. A phone, a craft services generator, an electric vehicle, you name it, there's a charging option. It's a dream for someone like Amanda Bates, because in this windmill world, Amanda would be able to charge her EV almost anywhere. But in this world, Amanda is part of a sandwich generation and lives in downtown Vancouver. She's a Gen Xer, a business owner and a busy mom trying to take care of her family and do the right thing for the planet. And her life can have a fair amount of driving. I live downtown, so um, I'm not necessarily out and about every single day. I obviously do quite a bit of walking, but I run my business with my, my other half. I'm the, the VP and it's our own company. I have to do some client visits from time to time. We have clients around the lower mainland. I've got a 13-year-old son. I have a mom who's in her late 70s. And so between all of those things, there's quite a bit of unexpected driving. There's, you know, lots of doctor's appointments and things like that and, and various camps and after-school programs and things. Plus also my son's going to be going to school a little bit further away. Amanda is trying to be a responsible citizen. She cares about climate change and decided to buy an electric vehicle that pollutes less. This is Amanda's way of adapting to climate change. I'm Maria Vinka. Welcome to Fireweed, a podcast brought to you by the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Fireweed is the first plant to grow back after a forest fire. And given that we're talking about climate change and the future of transportation in this episode, the idea of resilience and renewal really seems appropriate. In Fireweed, we're exploring stories of adaptation and meeting people who are shifting their behavior for our modern world. Got a great story of shifting your pattern to suit the new now? Email us at fireweed at bcit.ca. Amanda's shift to an EV was relatively easy for her, but it's not without complications. Still, she's doing it for a peace of mind, knowing that in some small way, she's lessening her vehicle emissions and our collective reliance on fossil fuels. Both my husband's and my car's died the same weekend. So we sort of decided that um, we would get rid of both of the vehicles. It was really um, our 13-year-old son who was the the one who convinced us that this could actually happen. He's extremely tech-minded, whereas when he started talking about it, the environmental part of things uh, really uh, struck a nerve with me. But um, he was the one who made us aware of the um, subsidies that we could get, the, the different benefits that we were able to, to get. Because when he first said it, we both just laughed and we're like, don't be so ridiculous. That's so completely beyond the realms of possibility. And then when we started looking into um, the different things that were available to us versus um, what we would pay for a replacement SUV or something like that, as well as the gas prices, it did become something that was a viable option. And that just wasn't something that we expected to happen. And all of a sudden we were in a position of being able to go, you know what, maybe we should look into this a little bit further. And that's how we ended up in this position. The Canadian government has been incentivizing people to get electric vehicles for a number of years through rebates and trade-ins. However, it's the charging side of the EV equation that's still a little underdeveloped. How much research did you do into the charging situation? 
Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, we didn't do a ton of research before we sort of plunged in with with both feet. And that's, you know, probably not the smartest thing to have done. But when it came down to the the crux of how are we going to charge this vehicle and where are we going to be able to charge it, that wasn't something that I thought was going to be too much of a problem. Like most condo dwellers, Amanda has looked into getting a charger or power source in her parking spot. And like most EV owners, she's kind of given up. I live in an apartment building and it's an older apartment building and we don't have the ability to install trickle chargers or anything like that. So whenever I need to charge, I need to go elsewhere. So we became very familiar early on with all the different apps where you can you can track the different chargers, the chargers that we have access to, whether it be the superchargers or, or the other chargers that we, we have the adapter for. And we're also getting our building to look into installation of whatever infrastructure is necessary to take it into the next couple of decades because you can see the number of vehicles that are on the road right now. When we went to the dealership to pick up our vehicle, it was just like this incredible, just, you know, like a production line of people going through, like sign this bit of paperwork, go into this room, then sign this bit of paperwork, then go over here, get your license plate, sign this thing, then do your insurance. And I was like, what's going on here? And I said to the guy, how many people are you seeing here? And he said, we're going through, you know, 50 to 60 people a day. And this is one place. So if that's being repeated everywhere else in in the city, in the province, um, in the country, in the world, then the infrastructure needs to catch up really, really quickly. It hasn't caused us too many issues. It would be great if I could have um, charging capability in my parking spot, or at least in my parkade. I don't have that, but we manage. This is a familiar story to Clay Howie from BCIT's Smart Microgrid Applied Research Team, also known as SMART. Clay knows that the demand for at-home charging is growing fast, and it's an uphill battle to retrofit old buildings for a number of reasons. So Clay, what are the typical barriers to installing EV charging stations in condos? So condos, there's quite a few barriers, and part of them are, are just knowledge. If somebody is in a condo and they approach the strata saying they've got an electric vehicle and they want to charge, a lot of people in the condo don't have realistic expectations about how much the electricity is going to cost and they may have the attitude that why should I be paying for someone else's gas? Typically the electricity costs themselves to to power an electric vehicle over the course of a month or a year are quite low but what is costly is making or can be costly is is the uh, infrastructure to, to install the charging. A lot of the condos, well 99.9% of them were built before electric vehicles were a design consideration. So the electrical infrastructure was never designed or sized appropriately for electric vehicle charging. So that's a a significant barrier. If a building does get the go-ahead to install chargers, or for new buildings which are already considering this, Clay recommends using an electric vehicle engine management system, where multiple spots share one circuit, instead of installing a circuit in each parking spot. Why should condo owners look at installing one of these electric vehicle management systems? What problems does that solve? It's a way of managing the energy that's going to be distributed to the cars. The old way of doing it with the old Canadian Electric Code required that you put in dedicated circuits to each charger. They're typically 40 amp circuits. And if you do that, if you've got a significant number of electric vehicles in your parkade, you're going to quickly exhaust any spare capacity that you've got in the building. So an EV EMS 
shares the power along a collection of EVs. So the power is shared. So you could have slower charging times, but generally speaking, cars are, are plugged in overnight so that everyone can, can get to their destination by morning. So with an EV EMS, typically all the cars are going to be charged, maybe not to 100%, but you know, to 90, 95%, they're going to be able to get to their destination in the morning. Everyone's going to be happy. With the old way, you just don't have enough electricity for a significant number to be installed. Or you would have to have people moving their cars in the middle of the night to, uh, to, to get to the charger. So this is a way of just sharing the power equally among a large collection of electric vehicles. But what if charging at home wasn't the only appealing option? Remember those windmills? They just might be the answer. We know public charging stations can work, but only if there are enough of them. And Clay's work with microgrid technology may hold the key to our charging problem. How are microgrids different from traditional grids? So the traditional grid is, um, is hierarchical in nature. Generally, you have very large centralized uh, generation. In BC, we've got the hydroelectric dams that are located generally about 400 kilometers away from where it's being used. So you have big transmission lines. Smart microgrids are like the larger electric grid, but on a smaller scale. Uh, they often involve integration of renewables. So you can have solar panels, uh, wind turbines, uh, etc. as well as traditional generation. You may have, you know, uh, what they call a genset, a generator. But it's about using different kinds of generation and being uh, very flexible. And usually you're generating electricity close to where it's being used. Right where you plug in your EV. And that extra energy could be stored at the location and used at a different time, which is a huge bonus. So what are some other benefits of microgrids? So the, the, the big generation plants um, uh, like you have in, in parts of Canada and U.S. and the rest of the world, it's difficult for them to regulate the amount that they're generating. Usually, if they're generating three gigawatts, that's what they're generating all the time. Whereas um, other forms of generation, especially in microgrids, you can better match how much you're generating to how much you're using. So you get a better match. You don't have to worry about generating too much, which is very problematic in today's world where we're worried about efficiency. You're listening to Fireweed, a podcast from BCIT. I'm your host, Maria Vinka. If you'd like to share a story of personal, professional, or systemic adaptation to our current confusing world, get in touch with us at fireweed at bcit.ca or DM us on Instagram at life at bcit. Welcome back. So we've clearly outlined the urban windmill fantasy. But what happens when you take your EV out of town? Remember Amanda? She's a hard-working Gen Xer, and she needs a vacation. She's been planning a road trip to the Rockies in her electric vehicle. But there are some considerations. I thought we could plan it together as a family and work out our trip based on charging stations. So that's what we've been doing. We've been looking at the places we want to go to. And then we're looking on the app and cross-referencing it and seeing if there's charging stations there. And, okay, there's not one there, but there's one over here. So we would have to stop here on the way. And it's not, um, it's not a supercharger, so therefore we might need to bank on spending a little bit longer there. 
it's a little bit of a challenge, to be honest. There's not that many superchargers. And obviously, you don't want to get stuck in the middle of the Rockies with a vehicle that doesn't have a charge on it. Um, so it's it's adding an extra layer onto it, but actually turning it into more of a challenge and, and more of sort of a fun element to our trip. How much is the charging station situation dictating your route? Well, there's definitely routes that we can't go on because there aren't the charging capabilities on some of them. So when we were going sort of towards Merritt Kamloops way, we were going to go sort of like the the, the back route and go that way. Not going to be possible because um, we would have a, a definite uh, challenging in getting up there if that was the case. So it's it's certainly changing our route. And it's changing the way that we think about things. I mean, we could take, um, we, we have access to another vehicle. I don't want to because I, I wanted to kind of just make it fun for, for my son to sort of help us with the planning on this one. But yes, it's definitely, it is, it's, I wouldn't say restrictive necessarily. I mean, that I guess it is in a way because we're not going a particular route and we have to kind of um, decide whether or not we can stay somewhere. But at the same time, it's kind of fun that there's that kind of element that we've, we've added into our holiday planning because it's never happened before. It's kind of fun. So if you stick to the main roads, you'll probably do fine on an EV road trip. But off the beaten track, it's a little more dicey. Along some of the transportation corridors in the province, there may not be transmission lines, so you may not have electricity, especially on some of the more northern routes. So you could envision uh, microgrids. You could have solar and wind farms that are hooked up to batteries to enable uh, provisioning of uh, an electric vehicle charging station along these northern corridors where there just isn't any electricity, grid electricity. To be clear, right now there are not many microgrids in BC, but Clay says they are coming. It's highly likely the microgrids are going to become more and more common. Microgrids add a level of reliability to the grid because you're not only dependent on those faraway dams. If we have a problem with, uh, you know, one of the uh, electric dams in, in Revelstoke, it's going to have some repercussions. Uh, we're going to have to start importing power from Washington State or Alberta and so on to make that up. With a collection of microgrids, you become less dependent on that centralized power generation source, so it makes the entire system more reliable. In the meantime, what do people like Amanda do? Mark Zacharias from Clean Energy Canada says Amanda won't have to wait too long for plentiful charging options. We're just going through some growing pains. So right now, BC has around 2,500 um, distinct charging stations. Um, most are in the southern part of the province, and it's growing every day. Um, for comparison purposes, Washington State and Oregon have around 870 and 600 charging locations, respectively. Now, it's not quite an apples and oranges comparison to BC, as BC is quite a bit larger geographically than Oregon and Washington State. So right now, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. So what's happening is more people than anticipated are buying electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles, and the charging infrastructure has to catch up. And again, BC is no different than any other jurisdiction in North America. You may have seen pictures and news articles from California where there's you know, hours long waiting lines on weekends for people to charge their Tesla on a road trip. So again, it's, it's a problem the whole world has right now. And it's the problem of early adopters and particularly in BC because we're first movers on electric vehicles. Mark says there are additional factors besides charging access that will have most of us choosing to drive EVs before the end of the decade. 
longer-lasting solid-state batteries, and the fact that the Canadian government has mandated that by 2035, 100% of new vehicle sales in Canada will have to be zero emissions. And once you have that vehicle mandate in place, you're going to find that electric charging stations start to multiply because a number of things happen. One is there is a demand out there and companies that set up electric charging stations can make money off them. So there is a marketplace now with all these new vehicles coming along. There's going to be a supply of charging stations. We have local and municipal governments that are actually incenting people to install chargers into their house and new construction will have chargers. So the tipping point for electric vehicle adoption in Canada is coming up. And it's probably going to be 2024 or 2025, where internal combustion vehicles become cost comparative to electric vehicles or even fuel cell vehicles for those that want to use those. So combine that with the cost of ownership for an electric vehicle that's 40% below an internal combustion engine vehicle. And really the savings add up quite quickly. Um, particularly the more you drive, the more you save if you have an electric vehicle. So what that means is that the, the economics of electric vehicle ownership are going to drive its adoption, not government policy. So government policies have been driving people and providing incentives to either buy the car or charge the car. That's going to change as they become cheaper, and particularly when people realize the costs of ownership are cheaper. There's a lot going on in the electric vehicle world from renewing our power grid to incentivizing EV ownership. I just hope that Amanda gets her vacation soon. This is Fireweed, a podcast from BCIT, where we're weaving together stories of adaptation and innovation. I'm Maria Vinka. We're speaking to researchers, innovators, and just, you know, regular people who are moving our world forward. Do you have a story to share with us? Maybe know someone who's doing things a little differently and it's working? Email us at fireweed at bcit.ca or send us a direct message on our Instagram at life at bcit. Thanks to all our guests, including Clay Howie, Mark Zacharias, and especially EV warrior Amanda Bates for fighting the good fight. And of course, thank you for listening. Thank you.